0: Back, everybody. You are listening to the Northern Miner podcast, and I am your host, Matthew Keevil. As usual, we are brought to you by the Yukon Mining Alliance. Please do surf by YukonMiningAlliance.ca to check out all the exciting exploration and development activity going on in Canada's Yukon Territory. And this is episode 64 for the week of June 19th. That is right. The first day of summer is right around the corner. Uh, The days are getting longer and hotter, but I will be here nonetheless uh, in studio to bring you the latest news from around the mining world Uh, whether you're off to Disney World sitting on the beach going up to the lake uh, taking a flight to Mexico I'll be here we'll be bringing you uh, the latest news uh, from the global mining community this week we have a couple great segments firstly Leslie will be swinging by with the new new edition of the geology corner Uh, this one focuses on tsunamis and earthquakes that's right especially topical for those of us who live on the west coast. Uh, we will be talking with David Huntley, a suficial geologist with the Geological Survey of Canada. Uh, we'll be talking about predicting earthquakes, uh, some of the geological science that goes into uh, into these sort of uh, uh, tectonic events. Uh, so Leslie will be sitting down with David. It's a great little segment. It uh, runs just under 10 minutes, so it's a, a nice, little, uh, nice little intro into some of the uh, geological considerations that go into uh, earthquake and tsunami work. Uh, so that's a great one. Secondly, I finally got my hands on some high-quality audio from our um, Canadian Mining Symposium, which we uh, had in London in May. You may recall me talking about it in previous episodes – this segment is with Robert Friedland. So it's about a 14-minute segment where Robert Friedland talks about uh, disruption in mining and uh, technological changes that he's seen throughout the industry and what that might mean for metal demand. Uh, so we have about uh, 14 minutes. It's moderated by our group publisher, Anthony Vaccaro. So you, uh, Anthony's sort of making his premiere on the podcast as well. Um, but uh, I'll run that as well. Uh, before we get into that stuff, though, I'll go through a little bit of macro. We'll talk about what's going on in the world. Uh, then we'll run through uh, Robert freelance segment and move into the geology corner so that's sort of how the show is shaping up Uh, but first let's dig into a little bit of macro overnight markets were mixed with europe higher as bank of england governor mark carney talked down expectations of a rate hike meanwhile in asia the nakai was up 0.8 percent while shanghai was down 0.14 percent in another relatively light day in terms of macroeconomic data Spot gold prices inched back up to flat this morning after hitting five-week lows overnight. This came on the heels of New York Fed President William Dudley reinforcing that recent weak economic data is unlikely to derail plans to keep raising interest rates. A myriad of geopolitical events, including Brexit, Trump's ability to press forward with financial reforms, and European Middle Eastern elections continue to provide some support for the yellow metal. Total physical gold ETFs were down 22,000 ounces on Monday. Furthermore, copper dropped $0.05 to $2.58 per pound overnight as LME inventories continued to trend lower, falling by 3,100 tonnes to 262,000 tonnes despite industry chatter of a large decrease in bonded inventories in China during the first two weeks of June. Meanwhile, zinc remained flat at $1.16 per pound. Overnight, London Metal Exchange zinc inventories declined by 1.7% to the lowest level since January 2020. 2009 and finally nickel was down by 1.3 percent or five cents to four dollars and four cents per pound despite more global supply cuts uh, the metal reversed this morning after initially being higher on the news of the shutdown of 13 smelters in indonesia in response to no low nickel prices and that pretty much concludes our Touch of Macro for the week. We will continue to keep our ear to the ground through the summer to uh, get you set up on metal supply and demand heading into fall. Um, but now, without further ado, let's continue into our segment with Robert Freeland from the Canadian Mining Symposium in London this past month. Uh, this one's really interesting. As mentioned, he talks about technology, uh, both uh, broadly and how that might affect Affect metal demand and also technology vis-a-vis how it might affect mining itself uh, in terms of uh, processing, uh, milling, etc. Uh, so it's a really interesting segment. Um, one thing, one disclaimer. Um, Robert uh, does have a little bit of a tendency to uh, to get to his point circuitously, uh, so there is a little bit of anecdotes and uh, stories and stuff. But it's all very interesting because he's he's just generally brilliant. So you, you end up getting all these really cool sort of little side notes when he speaks about uh, about uh, mining and how it uh, sort of fits in with things globally, like broadly. So we're not we're not really parochial here. Uh, he's talking about mining as an entity within. Broader civilization, basically. Um, and uh, it, once again, as mentioned, uh, Anthony Vaccaro, our group publisher, is making his Northern uh, Minor podcast debut this week. Uh, Anthony moderated uh, Robert's, uh, Robert's segment at the symposium. So you'll hear Anthony in there a little bit as well. Um, but yeah, let me uh, run this and I'll see you after the break uh, just to introduce Leslie's Geology Corner.
1: Uh. You know, I'm we, we trying to get our mining company to keep on hiring kids between, say, 20 and 27 years of age because they're not burdened by all of our previous thinking, you know. And mining is one of the last industries that's going to be profoundly disrupted. You know, we think mining industry is going to change completely in the next 20 years. And we want to be part of that process rather than following it. Can you but shed a little... Can you shed a little more light on that? What aspects do you think are going to be, where is that dis- what form is that disruption going to take within the mining industry? Now we're getting into the stuff I really wanted to talk about. So um, at any given moment today on the continent of Australia, 16% of the electrical energy, one-six percent, is either crushing or grinding rock. And so that's many, many, many nuclear power plants equivalents, each one is a gigawatt. a thousand, you know, 1,000 megawatts or a gigawatt. Typical nuclear power plant unit is you know, 1,000 megawatts. So there's probably the equivalent of 30 nuclear power plants crushing or grinding rock on the Australian continent at any moment. So when they mine iron ore, they grind this stuff down to talcum powder. They mine any other kind of ore. It's very energy intensive. Now, we think that uh, new technology is going to come to reduce that energy consumption by 99% using very powerful electromagnetic pulses that came out of uh, atomic weaponry and electromagnetic pulse weaponry. It's possible to cause rock to just not want to be rock anymore. (laughs) It doesn't think it's rock anymore. So we'll start with physics, and it's all very counterintuitive, but but the way it's done is with a very powerful electromagnetic field in the more advanced way. That's the way the Americans do it, Russians, uh, Chinese, Israelis, Americans, Pakistanis. This technology is now known. Now we can turn it to mining. You need a supercapacitor. You need an ultracapacitor that compresses electrical energy. When metal is uh, subjected to an electromagnetic field that's strong enough, it doesn't want to be metal anymore. It doesn't think it's metal without getting hot. This is amazing. Like you have a fork or a knife or a spoon. If you, if you subject that metal to a very powerful electromagnetic field, it just gives up. It thinks it's a liquid. And then when you turn off the electromagnetic field, it goes back to being a metal again and it never gets hot. There's no wasted energy because the heat would be wasted energy. So what we think of in our brain as being a solid or a metal is not, it's just a matter in a slightly different form. Those of you that like Star Trek, uh, you see that pulse drive, You know, right? Warp drive. That's just a very powerful electromagnetic pulse. That's exactly how an atomic weapon is is detonated. So it can be done by the compression of electrical energy. So to further entertain you, uh, Thomas Alva Edison uh, developed the world's first light bulb. It was about that big. And uh, he originally wanted to make the filament out of nickel. So he was a miner. A lot of people don't know that Thomas Alva Edison was a miner. He went to Sudbury, Ontario, and he sunk a shaft looking for nickel because nobody was using nickel in 1882. And he almost found the nickel ore body that he was looking for in Sudbury. He gave up. He couldn't find enough nickel. So he made that first filament out of tungsten. And then he turned on this light bulb in his garage. It was the first light bulb in the history of our species. You know, the electricity was generated with a steam engine. They burned coal. The steam engine turned around it made direct current. The current went through a wire, into the filament, into the first light bulb. Holy shit, it turned on. And he thought, now what am I going to do? He was a miner, Thomas Alvedison. What am I going to do now? There's no place to sell light bulbs because there's no place to screw one in. There's no infrastructure for these damn things. So he created a penny stock. He was a promoter. And the company was called the New York Electric Light Illumination Company. They cut a deal with New York City to string these lights, D.C., direct current lights. Remember when you were a kid with a Christmas tree, if one of the lights went out, the whole string went out. He strung these D.C. lights down Fifth Avenue, 1883. And the deal was that he was charging New York City for electric illumination. The year before, they were still burning whale oil on Fifth Avenue. They were going and mining sperm whales. And taking their oil and burning it in these lamps for high-quality illumination because the rich people lived on Fifth Avenue. So here comes this guy with a New York electric light illumination company. I think he went public at 17 cents a share, and his market cap was around 200,000 U.S., which was you know, significant money in 1882. But it wasn't gigadollars, and I'm sure you all know that that company today is called General Electric. Right? And he was a miner. And it disrupted electricity and people didn't, we don't burn whale oil anymore for electrical light. So there have been countless examples of a lot of disruption that happened really fast before we had had the cloud or broadband or wireless or Snapchat or the ability to move huge amounts of data to everybody on planet Earth. So next is coming low Earth orbiting satellites, tiny little ones that will give ultra-high-speed Internet to everybody on this planet really cheaply. So everybody is connected to everything. So you got all these really smart kids in China that want to be Bill Gates. They want to be Steve Jobs. And when you go Google iHang 184, it'll freak you out. These Chinese kids who want to be Steve Jobs. They invented this vehicle. And they built it with their own money they made, selling you these drones at Walmart. What a story. I mean, it's unreal. Right out of the blue, this is the coolest video. Just go to YouTube, ehang184, and they tell their story. So don't think that entrepreneurialism is limited to America. It's almost extinct in France, but it's very much alive in China. It's a French word, you know. So everything is going to change. And so we're involved in this electromagnetic pulse stuff. And uh, let me give you another example, Uh, when we mine diamonds this is a mining related audience so we'll talk about mining so, when we mine diamonds it usually occurs, it's either alluvial or it's in a kimberlite pipe. And when, you know, diamonds are very, very hard. On the moss scale they're incredibly hard, but they're brittle. They break on their natural cleavage planes. So when we crush kimberlite in a diamond mine, depending on where we we set the mesh size, we break about 30% of the value of the diamonds. We tend to break the really big ones, where most of the value is. So, with the technology I'm talking about, we can just use electromagnetic pulses, and the kimberlite, which is the matrix in which the diamonds occur, just turns into a liquid. And there are the diamonds. They're released in three billionths of a second. And we don't break any of them. None of them are broken. So, a 30% net smell of the royalty in all the world's diamond production is disruptive. It's a trivial application of what I'm talking about. We can, we have a whole new paradigm on how to recover metals out of rock. For the last 400 years, uh, back to Dure Metallica, we recover metal from rock by beating it to death. We crush it and we grind it. And down at the micron scale, when you have very small particles of say gold in silicon encapsulation or in arsenopyrite, you can't get the metal out it ends up in the tailings pond, you know, maybe you get 90% recovery. In most mines, you get 90% of the copper, 79% of the silver, or the rest goes to the tailings pond. After we grind it down to talcum powder, and we use a huge amount of energy grinding that stuff down to talcum powder. So we think we have a new way to get the metal out of the ground, even down to the micron scale, just by spalting it away, separate. There's, a, there's an acoustic impedance differential between the specific gravity of the gold molecule and the surrounding rock. They have a different specific gravity. So when you put electromagnetic energy through the rock, it peels that particle of metal away from the surrounding rock. It's the opposite of crushing and grinding. It's popping it away from the matrix. And uh, we've done work in France with the support of the French government. And we can liberate, like we get like 99.99999, 99999% of any metal from rock with very little energy which of course will totally change the definition of ore. Ore is rock that you can theoretically mine at a profit, you know. That's why you have the concept of cutoff grade, this mystical concept of I mine this stuff, but this low-grade stuff I said over here, this is the good stuff of which I generate cash flow. This whole thing is gonna be disrupted. We're sort of last in line, you know. The oil and gas industry is hurrying is a little bit more desperate. Did you notice that OPEC and Russia just said, oh no, no, we're gonna go back and throttle back production again. Well, they're losing their power, you know. OPEC's losing their power. Even with the Russians, they're cooperating. Because the rig count uh, for shale just exploded when oil goes from 40 to 50 dollars a barrel. They just turn on these oil factories. And with the technology we're looking at in oil, we could probably get the cost down on that shale to trivial numbers. So we're swimming in an ocean of oil at the same time, we don't need it as much anymore. And you know, the mining of oil is the mining of anything else. It's all the same. I mean, it's a mine. It's just in oil and gas, the exploration hole is the mine. You drill the hole, you find an oil field. Well, you've just developed your mine. So it's a, it's a superior business to what we do, which is this miserable process of having to build a, a mill that takes nine years and go through this morass of government interference. And people that don't understand where a ham sandwich comes from, by the way. And they don't even understand why you're mining what you're mining. They think it's an inherent evil to be mining anything. And, and through their ignorance are epitomizing the ultimate in both stupidity and hypocrisy, which is a very bad combination. <laughs> in, at the Colorado School of Mines, they have these bumper stickers, you know. First one was called Stop Mining let the bastards freeze in the dark that one was quite popular (laughs) the one i like better is um, earth first we'll mine the other planets later of course (laughs) so um we really 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 see the prospect for extremely disruptive change if you're mining underground and you put a wi-fi system underground a, a, a smart 18-year-old boy or girl can run that entire mine off of an iPad. All equipment can be completely automated. Anything for a repetitive especially for a flat lying ore body, like the potash mines in Saskatchewan, you don't need people down there anymore. Because with with machine learning, every time a machine does a task, it gets slightly better. It adjusts the air pressure in the tires to reduce energy consumption. It's just a little more effective in driving, you know, the front end loader into the muck pile. It just gets better and better and better. Whereas a human being is daydreaming about pornography or what they could eat for lunch. They don't actually get better at repetitive tasks. In fact, they fall asleep and crash into you when they're driving a car. So when we have autonomous, uh, you know, autogenous driving, it'll probably be safer ultimately because too many people are texting while they're driving. So all of these changes are happening at an accelerating rate. And uh, we're going to find that certain raw materials are going to win big time. And certain other raw materials are going to be real losers. So when you read the newspapers, they say, oh, commodities are going up or commodities are going down. That's completely idiotic. you notice how much the Globe and Mail got smaller? Or or the Financial Post newspapers keep shrinking because the paper gets too expensive. So, what a great time to be alive, you know, and what a great time to change mining and uh, re-perceive it. I did want to ask you one thing though, and that is, you know, you, ta- you said a lot of things that referred to it, you know, one thing you said is you kind of look at a table of elements and you kind of decide, you know, which ones are going to have the yeah. most growth and you go from there. You but no... Well, I'd love to be honest. Yeah. So that list. on that list, you want scandium for light weighting of aluminum. Scandium mm-hmm. aluminum alloy is a miracle alloy that enables you to 3D print with aluminum. Once you can 3D print with aluminum, you can make anything with 3D printing, you can make an elaborate motorcycle. So you can also weld aluminum and make aluminum more ductile with scandium. Uh, For electric cars, to the degree to which we have uh, the pure electric plug in vehicle, we need cobalt sulfate and nickel sulfate, spherical graphite to a lesser degree, a tiny bit of lithium, about 4% of the value of the battery is lithium, we'll need some lithium, it's okay. Cobalt has been outperforming lately because cobalt is a byproduct of mining copper or mining nickel. And so there aren't too many pure cobalt deposits around. But cobalt, cobalt sulfate, nickel sulfate, spherical graphite, a little bit of lithium, uh, scandium for aluminum, and of course the king of all metals, copper, because as you electrify, you increase copper intensity. And aluminum wins too, vis a vis steel or iron ore. Iron ore is still good for rebar and building, you know, cement buildings. And, skyscrapers and stuff but those are the medals that are the lucky sperm club members on the periodic table those particular medals are the ones you want to go for
0: and welcome back to studio uh so that was great whenever you hear robert speak there's always just these total like um Sort of connections with things he's seen globally that wouldn't even occur to you. There was, a, you should have seen the um, process for me editing down that segment. It was like 45 minutes in total, uh, and then a lot of it, like, was was there was a lot of talk about like drone technology, and he went off on on a tangent about nuclear power and, and North Korea getting the atomic bomb and the Fat Boy program. And I'm just sitting there listening to this. And I'm like, this is am- this is amazing. I just it's a mining podcast. I, I wish I could put all of this in. Uh, one day maybe I will run in to- in total totality uh that segment with Friedland because it's actually uh it's it's very very interesting um but yeah I'd like to thank Robert Friedland once again uh he uh, won our uh lifetime achievement award at the Canadian Mining Symposium um so thanks to him for stopping by and giving a great address and thanks to our group publisher Anthony Vaccaro for moderating that and now let's move on to Leslie's Geology Corner, where we'll be sitting down with surficial geologist David Huntley to talk about earthquakes and tsunamis. I promise it's not too scary, even if you live in Vancouver. So don't worry; uh, you can keep the kids in the room for this one. It's not, it's not, it's not apocalyptic. It's good. It's 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 actually really interesting. Uh, they chat a little bit about uh, predictive science in terms of earthquakes and things like that. So it's it's a really cool little segment. Um, so uh, I will run this, and uh, once again, I will be back after the break just to wrap up the show.
2: Hey, I'm Leslie Stokes, and you're listening to The Geology Corner, a podcast that delves into Earth's 4.6 billion-year-old history and all the metal deposits along the way. Today, I'm actually down at the GSC's Geological Survey of Canada's in downtown Vancouver, and I'm sitting beside David Huntley, a scientist here. And um, we're not going to be focusing so much on metal deposits, but instead we're going to be thinking about tsunamis and earthquakes. And it's a bit of a reality that people on the West Coast and face. So, David, um, maybe a little bit of an overview of your research here.
3: My focus in... Uh... Research, research into geological hazards, it's more towards uh, establishing the past tsunami records uh, for the West Coast. So, so what
2: does the past tsunami records look like in D.C.? Is it pretty extraordinary?
3: Well, it's, uh, you know, we've clearly found evidence of uh, multiple tsunamis uh, in, uh, in the sediment records uh, on the West Coast. So we see evidence of the 1964 tsunami from Alaska, uh, typically in uh, the the uppermost uh, soil horizons. So we, we we've established that you know, uh, these the Alaskan tsunamis or you know, earthquakes in. Uh, Uh, the Aleutian Arc, for instance, they can impact uh, coastal communities in uh, mainland or on Vancouver Island, for instance. Uh, We've also found evidence for the 1700 uh, Cascadia event, which for uh, the West Coast was the last major sort of um, uh, uh, mega tsunami and uh, mega earthquake, uh, which is what we're worried about sort of uh, now, sort of the recurrence interval of, uh, of, of these large megathrust uh, events. Mega, <laughs>
2: uh, mega thrust events. So is this all the earthquakes that triggered these tsunamis in the past, and like when, when you look look at the debris in the soil horizon are you is it kind of disordered throughout the history or is it is there an order is are these things happening periodically with a calculable sort of time
3: they're, they're happening periodically but uh, not sort of in a regular uh, clockwork fashion so you know for instance uh, uh, the the audience might not sort of uh, realize this, but we're sitting in front of a, uh, um, of, a of a monolithic sample of uh, tsunami deposits uh, oh, yeah, right here and what what, uh, what we're looking at in. are uh, <laughs> at least three uh, three sand layers within uh, a, a a meter of, of sediment, which are you know uh, events that are probably tsunamis, going back from 1700 to 6500 to you know before then. So you know, there's quite a, a, a sizable gap in the age record from uh, up here to the uh, previous event 3,000 years. So the, uh, the, we're really sort of not too sure on uh, tightly defining the cyclicity yet. So, uh, one of the reasons we're trying to sort of get more, uh, more samples is to try and tie down the, uh, the actual chronology of, uh, of events.
2: So why is it that people are always saying in Vancouver, it's like, oh, the big one's coming. It's going to be happening. We're falling within this time frame. We're going to have this mega earthquake. How do they know with confidence that we're going to, we're due? For
3: well, we don't. It's probability. It's statistics, really. oh
2: Really? Yes. So I don't really
3: need to There's a 50% <laughs> chance of, uh, uh, you know, but it's, uh, it's just probability, it could happen tomorrow. It could happen in a hundred years. We really don't have the uh, um, the constraints and the the understanding, I think, of the system to be able to fully uh, predict when uh, when the next big earthquake is going to happen. We can only you know, give a. A, a, a time frame in which we have to you know, plan for uh, plan for such an event.
2: What like what kind of size do you reckon? Not, not to I know that David, you're you're not an oracle. No, don't know the but future, you know but it's we have uh, an idea of if how, well uh,
3: the on. the Cascadia event that was probably sort of in the order of eight to a, to a nine magnitude event, which really? is you know, comparable true. to the 2011 oh. uh, uh, event in Japan. Which you're, that generated a substantially damaging tsunami. Oh, like $300 tsunami. billion, dollars, I
2: think exactly.
3: And that, that's, you know, that's a nicely developed uh, sort of stretch of coast with power plants, settlements, somewhat analogous to uh, uh, sort of the west coast of uh, the Pacific Northwest from Oregon all the way up to, uh, up to Tofino to... Will
2: it hit us here in Vancouver? Because Vancouver Island is sheltering us.
3: Uh, again, it depends sort of like, uh, like where you are and, and, the, and, and the modeling too. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, like it's, uh, you, you can model uh um, a Cascadian event, and it 'll wrap around the southern tip of Vancouver Island but uh in doing that it 's taking a lot of its energy out and until uh, you, you take the energy out you sort of diminish the uh, uh, the, the amplitude of the wave and the the the, uh, the damage that can uh, arise from uh, from such an event yeah. so you know, but Obviously, if you have a much more locally uh, uh, confined event, then that has the potential to generate a a more locally damaging uh, tsunami. Say if it's happening off, uh, uh, um, say, Victoria, for instance. Right. Mm.
2: So why, where is this earthquake going to come from? Like, what's causing it? Is its going to be some fault out in the ocean?
3: Yes, yeah, so it's, uh, you know, for the Cascadia event, it's the subduction of the, uh, the Juan de Fuca plate underneath the uh, the, the trailing edge of uh, the North American uh, coast, which, for, you know, from Oregon up to Vancouver Island it's actually subducting uh, beneath the uh, beneath the continental crust as you go further up north towards Haida Gwaii it becomes a transform fault so it's sliding uh, uh, beside each other and that form of earthquake is not readily, they don't readily develop uh, tsunamis so it's more subduction style uh, events like we get from uh, uh, sort of Oregon to Vancouver Island, that are uh, that are the main concern.
2: Um, great. So I guess for the next one, um, you're going to have to add another little layer of your soil profile here. Yes. There'll be a lot of cell phones in it. Maybe, yes. Or... Yes. Exactly.
3: You know, boys and sort of pieces of plastic. Uh.
2: Yeah. Well, anyway, I guess so. Uh, the best thing that we have to do is just get prepared.
3: Be prepared and, you know, uh, listen for the sirens.
2: Do we have sirens in Vancouver?
3: Uh, I don't know, I don't think so. We may in uh, Richmond. lowland areas I'd I'd, I'd suspect yeah Uh, I know in
2: Vancouver whenever I go surfing in Tofino there's always that sign it'd be like tsunami and and then you just like run up yeah but I've I've got my path mapped out
3: then then you're good yeah I'm
2: good (laughs) well I guess that's it well thanks everyone for um, listening in to this week's Geology Corner again this is Leslie Stokes with the Northern Miner joined by David Huntley a research scientist at the Geological Survey of Canada here in downtown Vancouver thanks for listening in thank you
0: Welcome back to studio. Thanks again to Leslie and David for putting together that geology corner on earthquakes and tsunamis. I know we've all had that question. Leslie asked about the big one in Vancouver. We hear about that so often. So it's interesting to hear what a surficial geologist has to say about that. And just checking my in studio timer here, we are coming up on the end of the show. Before that, however, wanted to briefly touch base with uh, our Yukon minute. Thanks again to our sponsors, the Yukon Mining Alliance. I'm just getting a lot of press releases coming down now about how companies in the Yukon are, are starting their annual summer program. So I just got a, another news release from Goldstrike that them and Newmont are uh, getting started at the Plateau property, about 130 kilometers away from Mayo. Uh, we know Attack and Barrack are getting going at the Racklap project, as well as uh, Goldcorp filing regulatory. Documents. Documents for its coffee project. Uh, So it's gonna be a really busy, busy summer in the Yukon. As mentioned, I will be heading up there in mid-July to check out what's going on, visit some of these properties and see how many birds are in the sky, as well as record a podcast at the Dawson Mining Show. So uh, stay tuned for that. It's going to be great. Uh, as noted, we will be uh, continuing throughout the summer to bring you uh, breaking uh, content from across the mining universe. Um, and As always, thanks again for listening. And uh, please do like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and uh, do subscribe and rate us on iTunes. I am Matthew Keeble. This has been the Northern Miner Podcast, and I will most definitely. Talk to you next week.